Could I just get a one, two off everyone individually? Yeah, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah. One, two. One, two. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. <laughs> oh, show off. <laughs> Hello, my name is Karen Reed, And my name is Felicity McMahon. Welcome to the second of Middle Temple's Survive and Thrive podcasts. The Survive and Thrive series are live events put on three to four times a year by Middle Temple. The aim of each Survive and Thrive event is to provide barristers in particular, but lawyers generally, with inspiration and advice on the valuable non-legal skills which they need to flourish in their careers. This podcast features two of our guests from tonight's Survive and Thrive live event, David Crystal and Clive Anderson, and we're going to be talking about eloquence, what it is and how to get it. David Crystal is a writer, professor of linguistics, editor and broadcaster. He has written over 100 books on the English language, many of which have quite wonderful titles, such as The Story of B, A Verb's Eye View of the English Language, and my personal favourite, Making Sense, The Glamorous Story of English Grammar. He received an OBE for services to the English language in 1995, and was made a Fellow of the British Academy in the year 2000. His most recent book, The Gift of the Gab, How Eloquence Works. And David, thank you for joining us on this podcast. Clive Anderson was called to the bar by Middle Temple in 1976 and practised as a barrister from Chambers in London for around 15 years. At the same time, he had what would now no doubt be called a side hustle, writing scripts for radio and television shows and performing as a stand-up comedian which then became his main career. Whilst he no longer practices at the bar, he is a bencher of Middle Temple. His programmes include Whose Line Is It Anyway? Clive Anderson Talk Back, Clive Anderson All Talk. He currently presents BBC Radio 4's Loose Ends and Unreliable Evidence. Welcome, Clive. So, uh, let's start with you, David. The gift of the gab. Is it a gift or can you roll up your sleeves and learn it? (laughs) A bit of both, really, I think. Uh, For some people, it's a gift. Uh, And if you have that gift, that's absolutely marvellous. But the basic point is that everybody, in my view, is naturally eloquent, is naturally eloquent. And people say, that's impossible. No, I could never be eloquent. I could never be eloquent. But then you say to them, "Did you, what, what programme did you watch on telly last night? And they say, such and such a programme. I, I didn't see it. Can you tell me about it? And then they tell you about it at great length and very fluently and beautifully elegant. Or they say, you know, I heard this story, this joke. Let me tell you this joke. And they tell you a joke. And it's really a lovely, beautifully, eloquently told joke. But of course, it's just the two people talking, you and me or him and a couple of friends or whatever it might be. So natural eloquence is there. The problem comes, of course, when instead of having just one listener or two listeners, you have 20 or 30 or 50 or a thousand. And that's the point when there's pressure put on the notion of eloquence and you have to develop a new set of skills in order to handle that audience type of situation. So what do you think, and I'll ask both of you this, um, what do you think makes that difference? Is it in the speaker or is it a genuine difference in how one has to approach a larger audience? Well, I'd say that there are differences of uh, addressing one person or a 
big room with a thousand people in it, uh, just in technical things and projecting the voice and so forth. But I would, I would guess, I mean, David's the expert, that it really just comes down to confidence, doesn't it? Mm. If you're used to addressing a big audience, a big audience is actually easier to talk to than one or two people because one or two people may not be interested or might, may not grasp what you're trying to say. Whereas in a thousand people, there's, there's going to be somebody that's interested and, and will, will know what you're talking about. And, and, you where, and where does confidence come from? And that comes basically from preparation. And it's that preparation that is absolutely critical. Uh, rehearsal, you might call it, even in some circumstances, and, uh, and even the most everyday kind of speech, an after-dinner speech or a, uh, a you know, ch- talk at a wedding or whatever it might be, that little bit of rehearsal is, is so important to produce the confidence. And part of rehearsal, and this is a big, big thing, is good timekeeping, knowing how long you've got and not going over that end point. And when you've got some of these background things under your belt, then suddenly you feel a lot more confident than otherwise might be the case. Can, can I just ask you, because you, you, you say, David, and perhaps you'll be developing this later on, you obviously have to say that uh, eloquence of a sort can be taught because that's essentially what you're doing. And I would agree that you can make somebody who's quite good better by giving them some extra coaching. And you can make somebody who's absolutely hopeless at least do the basics. Like sometimes a chairman of a company is not very good at public speaking, but he has to or she has to. And somebody can just uh, give them some uh, tips. But saying, well, anybody can be eloquent. It, I've been told um, by people who are you know, great musicians, say, oh, anybody can sing. Anybody could play a musical <laughs> instrument. Well, maybe, but I've never achieved anything uh, you know, even pleasant to listen to when I've been singing or trying to play a musical instrument. So maybe there's something deep within non-musical people. Maybe there's something of eloquence between tongue, uh, you know, lying beneath tongue-tied people. The difference is that you have to learn to play your instrument in some sort of artificial surroundings with teachers and so on and so forth. You don't have to learn to speak in that kind of way. You learn to speak in a very natural way from, from your folks at home, from your mum, from your dad or whoever it is that's bringing you up. And, so, and there are stages in natural language acquisition which everybody, unless you've got some sort of pathology, goes through. Now, the evidence that um, everybody is naturally fluent actually comes from the recordings you can make of, you know, little four-year-olds and little five-year-olds who are telling you a story. And any parent listening to this has been through this experience. I mean, you want them to shut up sometimes. (laughs) They are so fluent. They they are so articulate. They just go on and on and on. You know, Daddy Daddy went into the garden and he did did go on the swing. And and when he went on the swing, he he fell off the swing and and the swing hurt and he hurted his knee uh, in in the garden. And let me tell you more and more and more and more. Yes, okay, Mm -hmm. Yes, I get the point. You know, that kind of natural eloquence is there in all of us unless there's some sort of pathology. So I don't think it's quite like the the music situation, the singing situation and other places where you have to learn. And what about your other example? Say somebody tells you a joke. You say, oh, tell us a joke. Some people can tell jokes (laughs) and some people can't. Mm. Uh, They they forget the punchline or they forget (laughs) the line that leads towards the punchline. And I mean, this, you know, not everybody likes other people telling jokes, but some people can do it and some people can't. Do you think that can be taught as well? I'm not so sure about... 
My better example, I think, is the, is the one about tell me what was on the telly last night okay. or, or do you know what just happened in town? Let me tell you what I saw in the middle of town today. Yes. And so long as you know your subject, that's the point, isn't it? That's the other factor for confidence. You've got to know your subject. Mm. Um, and the subject, if it's a nice domestic, everyday kind of subject, then the, the natural eloquence is there ready to implement that, to express that. Mm. So when you don't know your subject or you're not sure about your subject or you haven't prepared your subject, um, maybe the joke example is not so good because I think that does require a certain modicum of skill or gift or whatever you like to call it. Uh, you'd know better than me, Clive, for that. Well, I don't know, I was just, I was just asking. <laughs> <laughs> David, you mentioned um, rehearsing and you've mentioned timing. Yeah. Are there other, or is there another element that you think is sort of the most important thing that goes into eloquence, or is it one of those things you've already mentioned? Well, in the uh, talk we're going to have this evening, I'm going to talk about some of those other factors, and there are several of them. Uh, of all of them, I suppose the most important one is know your audience know who you're talking to, know what to take for granted, know what not to take for granted, know the audience's attention span, know, know when they're going to go off-piste because their attention is wandering. Now, these are all things that, for which there's a great deal of scientific research, and in the talk I'll be, I'll be giving some examples of attention span and things like that. Well, these are things that can be, can be learnt, can be, can be taught to people so that they're aware that if they go on for too long at a certain point, they are going to lose their audience. If they uh, produce a structure in a certain way, it's going to lose the audience. And, and they will sense this uh, because the audience will start getting restless and nudge each other and look around and start looking at their mobile phones and things of that kind. And that's the point when they will deteriorate into incoherence. Uh, but there are these other factors, factors to do, that are scientifically based. Uh, people, most people aren't aware of them at all. If you get a certain amount of awareness of what these things are all about, then I think that helps enormously. Clive, you may well recall this from your days at the bar, but us mm. barristers are often taught to make points in threes. Um, do you think there's something in that? Do you think three is the magic number? And I, I suppose this relates to the attention span point that David just made. Well, uh, there is a sort of magic quality that's, uh, that's given to the number three. Um, David will know more about this, but I think it goes back to the days of Aristotle, and it was, it, it's, it's in all languages. It's certainly in joke-telling, you know, the English and Irishman, the Scotsman, uh, but that, that's a structure that just leads you, you know, in, you set up a pattern quickly and then break it with the, with the, the tagline. Um, and I've heard it said, yes, and lots of other points uh, are better made in, in threes, I'm not sure that's that's always the case. If you've got if you've got four good points, then there's there's four good points you're going to make, and there's no point in trying to think of an extra two to make two sets of three or abandoning one. Um, I think you often in in the courtroom situation, in a tough court like a court of appeal, you you've got to start with your best point because uh, if you lose them at point one, uh, mm. they're unforgiving. Yeah. But, I, but I'm perhaps drifting away from the... the, the well, the three, the three. Is, is indeed a magic number. I'll be talking about two magic numbers later, and a magic number five uh, to do with memory, and the magic number three. Yes, three is, is such a common feature of, of eloquence in, in lots of languages. Every language I know has mm. got a, a three structure. The question is why? And here you have to think sort of psycholinguistically. And the reason why three is so important is because the first iteration... Uh, introduces the topic to the audience. 
The second iteration allows the audience to focus on the topic, and the third iteration allows the audience to remember the topic. So there are these three aspects of it. Uh, if, if I say, you know, we did this, and then we did that, and then we did the other, then that has a kind of unity which no other numerical combination of entities has. Um, there's an example I shall give later uh, from Barack Obama, who says at one point um, uh, people gave $10 to this cause and $20 to this cause and $30 to this cause. And that's it. Now, if he'd just said uh, they gave $10 to this cause, well, so what? You know? if $10 and $20, well, still, so what? But there's something about $10 and $20 and $30 that sort of sums up an infinite possibility of more dollars to come. If he'd gone on, it would start to get boring. Some people gave $10 and $20 and $30 and $40 and $50. Well, sorry, what? <laughs> Shut up. I mean, I get the point. There's something about three, Father, Son and Holy Ghost, you know, there's something about three which produces a unity that that suggests not just completion, but infinite possibilities thereafter. And I think that's the sort of basic reason why it's so popular. You've mentioned Barack Obama, and he's often held up as an example of a very eloquent speaker, but his poetic oratory isn't always suitable for the Court of Appeal, for example. Mm. Um, how can we be eloquent whilst advancing an argument? Well, we're talking now about rhetoric rather than eloquence. I mean, there is an important distinction here. Elo eloquence is not trying to persuade anybody about anything. Um, eloquence is just uh, letting the speech roll out for fun, for domestic reasons. I'm not trying to persuade you. I'm just talking because it's fun to talk, you know. Uh, you're talking about a very different category. I shall not be talking this evening about rhetoric, uh, about arguments in that sense. That is a very different sort of world. It depends on eloquence, but it's not the same thing as eloquence. Um, and when, when we analyze political speakers uh, like Barack Obama or, heaven help us, Donald Trump, um, <laughs> they're both very eloquent in their individual ways, but it's a totally different kind of eloquence. And analyzing um, what, what makes the argument, what, what has to be there in order for an argument to succeed, is what I'm going to be talking about this evening. The actual extra points about the argument, that is, they should points should follow logically and all, all, all the things with good evidence and all the things that Clive and the other, other barristers would be doing. Mm. That's a very different matter. There is a, it's a different world. Mm. Well, uh, sort of courts vary uh, depending on what sort of case you're doing and who the, the body is that you're addressing. So uh, I suppose a speech to a jury is much more like a speech at a public meeting, a speech to the public, and I'm sure... Barack Obama, had his career gone in that direction, would have been a perfectly good uh, criminal barrister. Um, I'm not quite sure why you say he wouldn't have been good in the Court of Appeal, because he was he's a professor of law, right? <laughs> I suspect he wouldn't have been too bad at that. Um, it, it's, uh, I mean, it's difficult in, in judging political speakers, because sometimes it's the sympathy you have with the, mm. with the points being made. This is Aristotle again, isn't yeah. it? Yes. That's so, right. I mean, what are you appealing to? Are you appealing to the mind uh, and the logic of the argument? Or are you appealing to the heart? Mm. This is the difference between Obama and Trump, essentially. Uh, tr Trump appeals 
to the heart uh, and does it very successfully. And he does it in a, in, with a style of eloquence that is, is light years away from the, from the style of eloquence that Obama has. Can um, you think of any British examples at the moment? Uh, at the like time Trump. of recording, uh, <laughs> Theresa May is the Prime Minister yeah. and uh, Jeremy Corbyn is the leader of the opposition and neither really rate in eloquence, stakes or rhetoric no. or, or anything. No, one would have to go back, wouldn't one, to find uh, really, really eloquent people like, well, of course, Churchill is one of the famous examples for that kind of yeah. classical kind of eloquence. But, you know, so, some, some of the uh, politicians of times past have been very eloquent in their own way. Tony Blair had a great deal of eloquence behind, behind yes. him. Yes. Or Michael Foote as a, another Labour leader. He yes. had a very individual way of speaking, and he used to break the rhythm of the way you would normally hear the words delivered, and that <laughs> could have caught your attention, didn't it? Yes, that's right. And each politician has his or her own strategies here. Blair's was, now look... Mm. And that immediately, yeah. oh, sorry, look at what? Right? Yeah. And wh why does that work? It works because it's an everyday kind of thing. You and I chatting in, in, in the tavern might say, now, now look, Clive. Yeah. Uh, and that sort of grabs the attention. So what's going to follow that little interjection is going to be important. And so people listen out for it. Now, this is where Trump scores, you see. Uh, Obama never did this kind of thing. Uh, you, you listen to Obama and listen to the carefully crafted sentences and they washed over you and you, you responded accordingly. But uh, Trump's style is very much the style of everyday speech. Um, now, now, you know, look, believe me, but, but believe me, we're going to make Middle <laughs> Temple great again. We, we, we really are. We're going to make it great. We are. Temple, it's going to be great. Great it will be. Believe me, folks, folks. Now, things like folks and believe me repeated several times and the repetition of what you're saying three or four times. This is what we say in everyday life. You know, I tell you a story. Hey, Clive, listen, yeah. I, I went down to town the other day. I was, I was in town. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and when I was in town, uh, I, I saw, while I was there, while I was in the town, I actually, you know, and suddenly the, the point that I was in town comes up three or four times and nobody notices because you, you perceive I'm getting into the, the, the thrust of the story and you take it all for granted. I've never heard that kind of thing done on the public political stage, BT, as mm. it were, before Trump. Um, and, and you think, it'll never work, but he got in, yeah. so it must work. <laughs> so we've talked about political speakers. Is there anyone from any walk of life that you would particularly hold up as an elegant and eloquent speaker? And, and if so, what can we learn from them? Well, I, I think of two examples. Uh, Jonathan Sumption, who was uh, you know, a Supreme Court judge until recently, he's been doing the Wreath Lectures. I can remember uh, in a programme he was on that I was uh, presenting, and he was reading uh, you know, a well-written, densely written piece and was talking into the microphone. And then he was carrying on. I realised after a while he'd stopped reading. He was now just addressing us, <laughs> you know, extempore. But he was still speaking in sentences with subclauses, and uh, and that was a, a beautiful piece of <laughs> delivery. Or someone like Stephen Fry, uh, who's got. Um, I mean, it's, it's actually you can see it more when he's you know, not doing anything funny or just he's just addressing some serious issue. Uh, but he has a, you know a vast vocabulary. He's got a confident manner, uh, a charming manner. Um, so had he put his mind to the law, I dare say he could have been a, an impressive advocate. There are a lot of things he, he could have been. But, uh, mm. So those are two examples that rush uh, to, to my mind. Well, I chose Barack Obama for my book, Gift of the Gab, um, uh, because 
I was so impressed with that victory speech of his in 2000, and when it was, it was 2008. Um, and I remember it very clearly when I heard it for the first time as a linguist. I wasn't quite sort of calculating it in my head, but I thought, this opening sentence of his, it's working, but it hasn't ended yet. And when I counted it up afterwards, there were 31 words in this opening sentence. You, know, you can't normally handle a 31-word sentence with subordinate clauses and mm. things like that unless something is going on. And when you analyse what is going on, what you're finding is that you're breaking those sentences down into easily speakable and easily memorable chunks. So it's this notion of chunking. And this is where the magic number five comes in oh. because you can handle in your brain up to five content words in a expression without any trouble less of course without any trouble more and it starts getting problematic and what obama had this skill to do and i suspect it was probably behind your judge example as well mm. clive he had this innate ability this instinct for knowing just how much to put across before you, you lose the track of mm -hmm. what it is that you're saying. And that's, again, something that can be taught. Uh, but, of course, it also needs a good script, uh, script writer, speech writer, mm -hmm. <laughs> in order for you to be able to uh, put it across. And for those of us who don't have uh, speech writers or script writers... <laughs> you're on your own. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, is there anything in particular um, that you think we should bear in mind as your sort of top tip for achieving eloquence? The test of eloquence is when... It's all over, and you're walking down the street or talking to your folks, and somebody says, what did he talk about? Tell me. And you can't remember. Now, if you can't remember, the eloquence has been pointless. So you have to be able to be in a position to say, oh, this is what he said, or she said. This is what happened. And there are two points in any speech where you are more likely to remember what happened than anywhere, anything else. One is at the very beginning, and more important is at the end. People will carry away the final point more than any other point that you made earlier on. This is quite different from the uh, Court of Appeal sort of example you were giving earlier yes. on, where that first point has to be the crucial one, it seems. Yeah. Uh, but with everyday eloquence, it's the last point that you take away. So my advice would always be, whatever you say, however long you've been talking, if you want your audience to remember something, make sure you make it at the very end so that they've got something to take away. But isn't there a sort of standard thing with speeches that you say at the beginning, I'm going to say this, yes. then you say it, yes. and then you say, well, I've just told you that. Yeah. So but, in fact, the point yeah. at the beginning and the end are the same. Uh, and I'll indeed, be exactly and the same. Yeah. And you will hear that in action in a little yes. while. <laughs> but in the legal context, and I suppose other contexts as well, going back to the, the, the rhetorical point, is that to make a good submission in a, in a court of law, you've got to have good arguments. You've got to have some good uh, legal concept you're trying to get across or an argument on the fact, whatever it is. It's good if you're eloquent and putting you, you, you make the delivery as best as possible. But uh, it, the, the sine qua non, as it, what they would have said when they were still using Latin, is that you've got to have something to say. And that's, that's something even more important than saying it eloquently. Or, yes. or am I undermining this discussion no, by saying... No, I, I think not. This is, a con this is a, an argument, um, content versus delivery, which goes way back to classical times. I mean, some people argued in, in classical times that delivery was the crucial thing. Other people would say, no, no, it's the content that is the crucial thing. And this 
and, and there is no answer to this. I mean, the two things ideally uh, are two sides of a coin and they both come across well. But if you had to, if push comes to shove and you have to say which one is more important than the other, then there's never been agreement about this. Mm. Do you think that some of the, there are rules about, or at least guidelines as to what one does to make a speech eloquent so for example the say what you're going to say and then repeat it at the end make your good points at the end um, pacing that sort of thing but that some of the people who stand out as speakers are people who break some of those rules or do you think they're actually not breaking them they're following them but in a slightly different way yes rules are there to be broken certainly and um, if but if you over break then the risk is incoherence. The, the risk is that the audience can't follow you because they're not entirely sure where they stand in relation to you. We don't quite know what you're going to do next. You have to keep an audience comfortable. And by comfortable, I don't mean, um, you know, falling asleep or anything. I, I mean that they, they, they are with you. They are happy. They're not being distracted. Uh, now, the trouble with a rule-breaking thing is that it is a distraction. Uh, comedy, of course, is totally based on the rule-breaking. Well, in a happy period of my life, uh, <laughs> many years ago, I used to write jokes for Frankie Howard. There is, uh, I maybe a bit too old for, for, <laughs> for the, those of you in charge of this podcast, uh, but he was a, a long-established comedian, had ups and downs in his career, and uh, he sort of wanted to be an actor when he was very, very young. But as a comedian, he did everything wrong. There was not, he looked uncomfortable. He'd start a story and then get lost in it and break mm. off. He had he, he pull at his clothing. He looked shambolic, and yet, and he would deliver the jokes wrongly. There's, there's no doubt about it. He would he mm. would muck up jokes, but he was always funnier in his delivery uh, than any material that he'd been given, certainly by me. And uh, nobody could quite put their finger on why mm. he was so funny and so scared. And I don't think even he knew what he was doing. I think some of his incompetence was, was genuine. He wasn't putting it on, <laughs> yeah, but it was still fine. That's very so. interesting. Robert Graves, you know, summed it up for me once in a letter to the Times in the 1960s, I think. He says, a poet has to master the rules of English grammar before he attempts to bend or break them. Yes. Uh, and that mantra for poetry applies, I think, to literature generally and to... Everything in life. And, to, and yeah. to everything, really. If you know the rules, then you, you've got to know what you're doing, though, because if you... I mean, yeah. Howard it was amazing, and oh, two people can't get away with it like that. Has there been another Frankie Howard since? Uh, uh, not quite. We, not we quite. all lapse into Frankie Howardisms <laughs> occasionally. Anyone ever used to yeah, enjoy. Yeah, that's right. So break the rules. Break the rules. <laughs> but know them first. But know what you're yeah. doing. Know yeah. them first. And, and keep and your don't, audience... don't oh, break them too often. Don't break yeah. them too often. So keep the audience awake but not alarmed. Yeah. And there's some... There are, I, well I, I sense you're coming to an end, but I think there's, there, there are some basics, you know, like not hesitating, not repeating, uh, not straying from... The, I know that's the rules of just a minute, but it's... There, <laughs> there are things, and I'm aware of things that I do wrong, and I try and sort of clamp down on them, but uh, too much of it... I often find I yes. speak too fast. Yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. it's a good thing. Oh, well, I'm getting a lot in, a lot of yeah. content, but if the audience is, can't absorb it all, yeah. uh, then you're, you're wasting your time. You're, you're wasting their time because... They're, they're We're going to be talking about uh, speed of speech and, and talking too fast in the, uh, in the talk uh, this evening. But the, the big distractor, of course, which, again, only rehearsal can eliminate, is mannerisms. 
uh, if you have a mannerism, this is the big distractor. Whatever it might be, it might be the, the frequent use of a certain word, okay, uh, so suddenly, okay, is that all right with you? Okay, and I'm saying this point now, okay, and after you've done it about 16 times, uh, the audience is saying, please don't say okay anymore, I don't want it. Or it might be a visual or continually scratching you can't see this you people listening to the podcast but if (laughs) I start scratching my head and keep scratching it the audience is going to be distracted by this mannerisms um, will get in the way and will stop the audience feeling comfortable how do you stop those mannerisms (laughs) only by realizing that they're there and that's where rehearsal comes into play I always recommend that somebody who is going to give a speech for the first time Uh, or even perhaps a few times, whatever that speech is, uh, they should first of all record themselves uh, so that they can listen to themselves and notice whether they have got any audio mannerisms. And then if they're in a really lucky situation, they get somebody to watch them trying to do it, as it were, before the event and see whether they've got any physical mannerisms mm. as well. Well, you can film yourself. You can, you can film, yeah, and these days it's so easy, yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. So in court, you, you, you've got, often got a brief and you take the, the pink ribbon off and you've got it in your hand and you, you just start sort of playing with it like, like worry beads. <laughs> yes. I don't think that matters. But if that's what the, uh, the audience, the jury, the judge, the whoever's looking at you doing, it, that, yeah. that I think would, I would put in as a possible... Uh, distraction or mannerism. Yes, uh, yes I agree. Well, thanks very much indeed for having come to speak to the Survive and Thrive podcast. If you have enjoyed this podcast, or if you feel that a happy and successful life at the bar is not just about knowing the law and being an excellent advocate, then please do check out the Middle Temple website for more information about the Survive and Thrive series. You can watch previous events which have been filmed and take a look at what's coming up and book tickets if you like the sound of any of them. Come and see what we're doing.